This patient's compelling life situation reflects the challenge of breast cancer when it occurs in younger women. I met with Dr. Karen Dow, whose nursing research interest includes a focus on younger patients with the disease. As noted by the patient, cancer is expressed in a biopsychosocial tableau, which is different in each person and different in each young woman with breast cancer. One common important concern in younger patients who've not had children is fertility, and I asked Dr. Dow where this fits in in discussions with a newly diagnosed younger patient. When they're first diagnosed, for many, the first thought that they have is, but I didn't have my children. I haven't completed having all my children. I've had these dreams about my family, and I put those dreams off for many years. They might have continued to work. They might have gone back to school. They may not have been in that kind of a relationship that they had wanted. So it makes them think, first of all, about the future, and they realize that, wow, maybe I won't have that future, and that's important to me. And so I would say about 25 years ago when I first started listening to the stories of young women, they would be very sad and they would weep and they'd be much more concerned about that issue on top of than their diagnosis and their treatments, etc. But it was always within the relationship of what is this treatment going to do to me and to my fertility and will I not be able to have children in the future? In those days, there really wasn't very much information that was available, and there was even less available regarding any of the new assistive reproductive technologies. And so many times we just kind of threw our hands up in the air, and oftentimes the team would say, well, you know, your life comes first. That's the first and foremost. But in the intervening years, there's been a lot of changes, and women still have, young women in particular, still have their fertility and pregnancy issues as a concern. And I believe today that there are more options that are available. We just need to get those options to them before they're treated rather than after. What are some of the newer options that are now available? Well, for one, there could be a referral to the reproductive endocrinologist who has a whole host of assistive reproductive technologies that are available. Obviously, embryo cryopreservation has been out there for a long period of time. There are obviously issues regarding that. The first is the ovarian stimulation. But now that we see that there have been some work that has been done in the use of tamoxifen and letrozole with regards to that, The second piece is just by getting the information and saying, you know, before you start treatment, let's take a look and let's go down this aisle. In the past, they weren't able to have that. The second piece would be after that referral, there may be a period of time that they may need to have some type of wait period before they start their chemo. And that has real practical translation in terms of oncology care and oncology practice. And I think, too, the third is that many women, young women, they don't know that they may have had a pre-existing problem with infertility. Two, they may be overweight. They may not realize that that also has an effect. They had some other pre-existing conditions unrelated to cancer, but they put all of the infertility concerns in their cancer basket. And so for some, it's just really pulling apart what are the factors and where do you sit in your life, in your relationships at this point? Where does your treatment start, et cetera? And I think by bringing that discussion out, younger women start to get a better sense that it's either not all terrible, that something can be done, or at least they have some idea in the future what they may want to do. Another person might consider a gestational carrier. And of course, that depends on where they are, where they live, and it's certainly someone they would have to see as an attorney in terms of getting that information together. But if someone were to consider that for the future, again, there's still an option. 
gestational carrier. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, a gestational carrier is a person who is a woman who basically will carry the pregnancy. That as an option has been available for several years, again, depending on the state in which person lives. But it does take time. A woman does need to see an attorney. It does need to have a contract that is you know, put together. She may decide, too, that she might want to have her embryos cryopreserved, and then that embryo then gets transplanted into the gestational carrier who carries that pregnancy to term. And there was a case report that just was in the literature on that, I think, last year. Interesting. Have you ever been involved personally with a case in where that happened in breast cancer? Not in breast cancer. I had experiences with friends who have actually been gestational carriers for other reasons, but not related to cancer. Yeah, I guess the one thing you wonder about is, you know, what happens? Does that usually work out? I mean, do women who do that end up getting attached to the child and have a difficult time letting go or what happens? I think we've certainly seen in the news in the past several years, probably even eight to 10 years ago, it became much more of an issue. But I think today, given the different legal ramifications, I don't think that people necessarily go into it blind. So interesting, though. It is an interesting option. You know, it's interesting, too, in terms of this issue of fertility. Obviously, one key question is going to be chemotherapy, because that clearly is going to have an impact on the ovaries. The older the woman, the more the impact's going to be. And I guess one of the trends that's happening in medical oncology that sort of ties into that is, I think we're moving towards a more judicious use of adjuvant chemotherapy. You know, we have the Oncotype DX assay, which we've talked a lot about on this series, which tries to identify the lower-risk women and try to pick out the ones who really need chemotherapy. And I see just in the last couple of years, I think because of Oncotype, physicians a lot more questioning whether or not somebody really needs it. And I guess if you add in this issue that it's going to also impact your ovaries, that's another reason not to do it. I think absolutely. And I think, you know, we haven't really touched as much on some of the oncologic options, but clearly that would be really important in terms of the decision making. And if women knew earlier on and expressed that concern, I think that it's always good to have that conversation earlier rather than later. Once treatment starts, it's, you know, we're in a whole different ballpark. So the more discussion that can be done early on for younger women and by young women actually initiating those conversations, I think it's that collaborative relationship in terms of getting treatment and agreeing to treatment and providing therapy. Another issue with younger women is the issue of premature menopause. Again, often because of chemotherapy, sometimes for other reasons, maybe prophylactic oophorectomy in some cases, a lot of women facing this issue of menopause at an earlier age than expected. What are some of the issues there? Well, first of all, they hate hot flashes. <laughs> women in general just don't like hot flashes. They don't like how they, you know, have to endure them. They see the hot flash starting. They feel it. They feel it coming up through their neck and then in their face. Many women are working and employed and in professional situations or just on day-to-day. So that's number one. It's bothersome to them. It also affects their sleep patterns at night, wakes them up. They get very hot and they get very cold. So their sleep is also disturbed. They're not happy with that. It doesn't add necessarily to their excitement about fatigue because they may already be fatigued as well. That would be one. And I think that's you know certainly an important issue during treatment and then after treatment ends. And then for others, it would be some of the either cardiac effects that occur, also what happens to them in terms of their bones and potential for osteoporosis in the future. So they're all those menopausal symptoms kind of mixed up, but it first starts with their real concern about the hot flashes. 
I'm going to tell you about an interesting situation. Maybe you can give me some advice in terms of nursing education that we just found out, which is when oncologists use the new taxane, nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel or braxane, which one of the advantages is that you don't need to use pre-medications like antihistamines or corticosteroids because they don't cause the allergic reactions or hardly ever. And the researchers don't use pre-medications with Abraxane. All the trials that tested Abraxane, they didn't use pre-medications. And actually, 40% of the oncologists are using steroids and pre-medications when they use it. So again, I could see this could be a situation where maybe the nurse back in the infusion room might say, hey, do we really need to give this patient steroids? They're at the point of care. They're the ones delivering the therapy. They would want to know. And I personally have not seen that as a piece of information that is out there. I think that it would be great information for the oncology nurses to have, particularly practicing oncology nurses who are right there at the bedside. I have not seen any data necessarily even in the oncology nursing literature. And so, again, that education, it's very simple once they hear it and say, hey, wait a minute, that's the major difference. We don't need to do these premedication. It's going to make life a lot easier for them. I believe that the nurses would want that information. I mean, it is practical information that gives them much better hold on their practice as well. Another issue that we found is that Oncologists are not all that, not every one of them is super impressed by the value of being able to avoid steroids. We know that steroids do cause problems, insomnia, et cetera, et cetera. And some of them, not the majority, but some of them kind of think, well, you know, it's not that big a deal, et cetera. But I've actually wondered whether maybe some of the fatigue that people might experience might be from having a couple of nights of insomnia every time they get the steroids. What are your thoughts about the problems that people see with steroids? Well, I think... First of all, sometimes when we're delivering care, we tend to minimize the side effects that patients may experience. And unless we've either been through that or we hear it over and over and over again, get sensitized in a different way than basically just saying, well, you know, everyone has it. When women have either been through treatment or have completed treatment, a large part of what they do talk about is that tiredness and it is sleep problems. And we tend to first think that it's much more related to the fact that they're having hot flashes because there is that correlation between the two, but it may also be related to the steroids as well. So we need to ask those questions. I think you're asking really important clinical questions that are going to have a big impact on people's quality of life, but I don't know if we necessarily have drawn that correlation of the sleep problems with the steroids. It's clearly related, but I don't necessarily think that either the clinicians or patients necessarily associate it with the steroids itself. There's a lot of bad things that can happen with chemotherapy, hair loss, nausea, vomiting, et cetera. But, you know, I think back to my days as an intern. You know, I didn't like staying up all night. It's just, you, know, you feel bad. You feel sick. And it's really a different kind of fatigue when you really, truly can't sleep. So I think you add that into the stress of having breast cancer and getting chemo. It's like, who needs it? And then on top of that, too, what also gets added in, you know, at night is oftentimes the time when women talk or think about the larger perspective in their lives about, you know, what is this impact going to be on my family, on my children? It's not necessarily something that they talk about readily, nor do families necessarily want to hear about it. And, and so that's why we see this growth in terms of electronic access, internet access, support groups, blogs, et cetera, where 
where in one instance, some women like to have the anonymity and just kind of pour their heart out because they get it out there. And that might help them as well. But I think that also adds to the sleep problems at night. We haven't necessarily examined that, you know, some of the multifactorial issues around sleep problems in patients who have received adjuvant therapy. I hear a lot of docs making kind of jokes about it. My patients tell me they have all this energy in the middle of the night and they clean their house and stuff like that. You know, that it's almost like that hyperactivity is almost like a good thing. I don't think it is a good thing. I don't either because what they don't hear is the crash on the other side exactly. of that hyperactivity right. and how exhausted people get as well. I think, too, the, we didn't talk about weight gain issues, but right. again, that plays into it as well. And so, yeah, that know, weight gain is so frustrating. You know, because it seems to happen consistently. Very, very much so. And one is eating more to help reduce the nausea and at the same time then having to deal with the body image and the weight gain changes. I took a look at some of our initial data for the women that are the young women, and their mean weight was 149 pounds with an average weight gain of about 25 pounds. Hmm. These were younger women that were concerned about fertility. That's just not going to help it that much either. Hmm. We put the question in in terms of our demographics, and I was like amazed at the amount of weight gain that women went through. A lot of people say that they're eating the same amount. And I mean, I'm not sure that that might not be the case. Maybe their metabolism has changed, you know, their activity levels may be less. So it must be tremendously frustrating. It is. And those are the day-to-day kinds of things that, you know, they deal with, patients deal with. It's not necessarily, you know, something that gets asked in an encounter, but it is a quality of life concern that they have to live with on a day-to-day basis. You know, that kind of maybe is a little bit of a segue to talk about one of your interests or major interests at this point, which is what happens after primary therapy for breast cancer, after the surgery, after the radiation, if it's going to be given, and after chemotherapy, that next phase, which they might be getting hormone therapy or they might, if their tumors are negative, you know, be moving on and not having any treatment. Can you talk a little bit about the research you've done in this area and sort of some of the issues that have come out in these patients? My focus in my research is looking at the needs and the concerns and the problems that women with breast cancer encounter after treatment ends. And that's a whole host of different factors that all come together. The first thing at the very end of treatment, what they would like to know is, how am I going to incorporate all this experience into my life. Well, that's very important, but it's not something that can be done every day. It has to be done each day, and it's not going to be all accomplished at one time. And the second piece that they're concerned about is when I'm going to be coming back for follow-up. And so the studies that I've done really starts at the point when patients finish their treatment. Yes, they're on hormonal therapy, but they're really integrating their cancer experience back into their lives, getting back to work again, the concerns that they have either about disclosure or the need for follow-up or their insurance concerns. The second issue has to do with some of the physical side effects. Clearly, the sleep problems continue. Fatigue tends to lessen, except in older patients where there might be some other reasons why they'd be having that fatigue. And the third big thing that is on their mind is, will my cancer come back? I think 25, 30 years ago, the diagnosis of cancer in many of the public's mind was, this is my death sentence. And today, people think that recurrences, they don't understand necessarily that there are the treatment options that are out there, that there are many ways that recurrence can also be treated. They think oftentimes that this is the end and there is no treatment. 
And in the past several months, I think Elizabeth Edwards has done a tremendous amount of putting the face of recurrent breast cancer into the public's eye. She's out there. She's active. She's receiving treatment. She's managing her life. It's a whole other chapter in her cancer life that's affecting her life, but it's still one where she is vibrant and she's active and she's undergoing treatment. And I think that that is a concern that women do have. I hear a lot about the fact that patients expect much worse than what's going to happen, even in primary disease. They think that for sure they're going to die. You know, they might have an extremely favorable situation, but until they're really educated, they feel like they're going to die immediately. But, you know, on the other hand, and you talk about Elizabeth Edwards, as I watch that, and I kind of mix feelings about it, because, you know, most people with metastatic breast cancer, I mean, the median survival is like a year and a half, two years. And, yeah, we see people who survive five or ten years, but it's a bad situation. Yes. It's a tragic situation. I'm sure patients might think it's going to be worse than it is, but it's still not too good. I would agree. I think, you know, maybe separating out those differences, if someone has bone metastasis and that can certainly be treated, that's a very different kind of situation than if someone else has organic systemic disease. Another round of chemo, different types of chemo, yes, it's got to start all over again. In those women who've had the recurrent disease, when they go back for therapy, at first, they tell us that the nurses say, oh, well, you've been through this before. You know what it's going to be like. You basically kind of know the drill. It's a whole different perspective, though, and they don't feel that way. And so in some instances, any kind of discussion about how they're feeling, their psychosocial concerns, basically don't get said. They hold it in because they see that their team considers them the expert patient at that point when they're really in a very, very different part of their life. And so absolutely, I agree with you. It's not a great situation. You know, the other thing about this, quote, post-treatment situation is the patient with an ER-positive tumor because even though they're finished with maybe the heavy lifting, so to speak, about treatment, they're still going to be on hormonal therapy. I guess it's really only been the last two or three years that we really started to appreciate that maybe this is going to be a 10- or 15-year endeavor Absolutely. of being on hormonal therapy. One of the issues there is going to be adherence, and there are studies out there that suggest that even in the first five years there are a lot of adherence problems. What are your thoughts about some of the issues there in terms of people taking hormonal therapy, you know, on a reliable basis? I think this is a whole wide open area in terms of looking further into the factors surrounding adherence. Who are those women or survivors that tend to adhere more to therapy versus those that don't? Who tends to fall off? What are the reasons why? Can we then boost them back to adhering if we have a better understanding of the reasons why they don't? And that's getting into their whole quality of life and living with cancer. And it is interesting that we call it post-treatment because once they finish adjuvant therapy, they still are on treatment. It's just that we don't see them taking, you know, their AIs every day or so or hormonal therapy every day. They take it at home and they're out in one sense of our mind, sort of speak. We don't have responsibility for handing them the pill and having them open their mouth and take it. And so what really goes on? Do they take the same time every day? Do they skip a few days? When do they stop? Who are those that were likely to not adhere? And how can we actually help improve those rates? Again, a whole wide open area, and I think that it's an important topic that needs to be raised. I just kind of wonder whether or not it's always brought to light to the nurse and to the physician what's really going on there, how often patients are having symptoms they think are related to the therapy and just stop treatment and don't tell their doctor. I mean, I guess it'd be hard to sort of document that, but I, I have a feeling that maybe it's not rare. 
I would agree with you. I mean, there are ways you can look at it. How often do they, not necessarily pill count, but how often do they renew or not renew their prescriptions? That would be one. Um, We've collected data on the kinds of medications, both prescription and non-prescription drugs that patients have been taking over a period of time. And we're actually amazed at some, we haven't quite done all of the analysis on that data, but we're actually quite interested in seeing how much herbal preparations and supplements that people take, thinking that this is going to help boost their health sort of along the lines of it's just as good as your diet and exercise when, in fact, it's not necessarily so. You know, another issue related to long-term hormonal therapy is I think the growing realization, again, only I think in the last two or three years of the natural history of breast cancer, and we've kind of starting to segment out ER positive, HER2 positive, triple negative, different diseases within breast cancer. Mm-hmm. And what we've seen with ER positive is a lot of relapses after five years. I mean, we always sort of knew that happened, but you know, maybe half of the relapses that occur in women with ER-positive tumors occur after five years. And we know that we can intervene in that situation. But I think it's also maybe important from a patient ed point of view, realistically, to let people know that this is a long-term scenario in your type of tumor. Maybe if you have an ER-negative, HER2-positive tumor, that's a different story. You know, maybe at five years, that pretty much is a story. But that clearly is not the case with ER-positive breast cancer. I think that is such an important area for survivorship. Again, it's extending beyond what we currently know, moving that into helping patients to better understand how to manage this chronic disease within their life. And this is what it's going to mean for you being ER-positive, the real importance for you to adhere to treatment. This is, you know, to your hormone therapy, and you may be having to take this for a longer period of time based on what data is going to be coming out. And so how then do you incorporate this into your life? And what are the factors that are going to help you stay on track and others that are not the barriers and that what we can do to help overcome some of those barriers as well? I think your other point, too, what are the other issues around it? Well, arthralgia is being one. Patients just generally say, well, I'm having these aches and pains. But let's talk about those a little bit more. Is it related and much higher, obviously, in patients that receive hormonal therapies? And then what it is that we can do about that? Are there simple changes that can occur in their lives in terms of their exercise or their, you know, regimen that they can then again incorporate? So this is managed. It's manageable. And one of the things about survivors is really their... It's not just their flexibility, but their endurance. You know, what they've been through, you know, this is just another chapter. This is another point in their lives, and they've been through tough times. They become incredibly resilient, incredibly resilient with the things that we say and share with them and the things that they need to do in order to manage. Another issue about ER positive, more of an issue today in metastatic disease, though, but it kind of gets into this issue of adherence, is the option of using the estrogen receptor downregulator, fulvestrin or Fazlodex. And in the metastatic setting where this is used mainly in postmenopausal women at this point, it's thought therapeutically to be equivalent, for example, to the aromatase inhibitors. And yet a lot of docs will prescribe the AIs straight off. And we actually did a survey of people in the past, 260 women with metastatic breast cancer, and asked them if you were faced with a situation of having to take a pill every day or an injection once a month, what would you prefer? And about a quarter to a third of them said, we thought it was kind of surprising. They'd rather have the IM injection. 
And another study looked at the same thing and actually found the same thing, another group in the UK. Does that surprise you? No, it doesn't, because just like anything else, day-to-day management is important. And to have a one-time injection on a monthly basis, for many patients who may not adhere, let's say, to pills every day, this may actually be the better way for them. And so, again, I think sort of the therapies being targeted, I think we also target patients. You know, which is the group of patients, as you were saying, sort of the subgroups within breast cancer? Which are the subgroups that are going to be most adherent and going to be least adherent, and then I think that we offer those therapies based on that, one. And two, you can stand maybe one injection once a month. And I remember when the fulvestrant first came out, we had a lot of concerns. You know, the nurses, oh my gosh, going back to injections and this and that. But based on some of the experiences with patients, it didn't hold. So the assumptions of oncology nurses or the care providers are not necessarily, as you've also found, congruent necessarily with the subjective experiences of what patients talk about. It was interesting because that same survey, we asked women to give us the details of what their life was like as a woman with metastatic breast cancer. And one of the things that we noticed was that it really involves the oncology office a lot. They seem like they almost live there. I mean, particularly (laughs) if they're getting chemotherapy, but even not, I mean, getting monthly bisphosphonates, getting blood work, getting tests. It was amazing how much time they ended up actually spending. Some of them liked it. I mean, they got social support there. But a lot of them was really getting back to your point about younger women with families, et cetera. It was an imposition. And, you know, that also brings up what we were talking about before with nabpaclitaxel because that has a shorter infusion time. So they get out of the office a little bit quicker. But I guess it gets back to your point about individualizing it based on the woman's needs and lifestyle. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. We did hear a lot about the social support. When their adjuvant therapy ended, many patients said that this is going to be a difficult time because I won't have that day-to-day or that week-to-week kind of support. And so for some patients, going back to the fulvestrant, they didn't mind going back for that once a month sort of social time to be able to have that one-on-one or at least that face-to-face contact with their oncology team. And for others, if their lives are extremely busy, then they would prefer the pills on a day-to-day basis. So it is that targeting. It does seem like there's a subset of women with breast cancer who really get a lot out of the oncology office, whether it's their nurse or the receptionist or the doctor or whatever, that I'd be like trying to stay away from there as much as I hate even going to doctor's offices. But uh, I guess there are other people who have their needs met by being in that kind of a situation. I think so. They don't feel like they have to explain themselves all over again. Right. And in one sense, too, the experience of cancer is normalized for them. You know, they're there with a team. They see their oncology care providers, their doctors, their nurses, the oncologists, and they don't have to say who they are. As you know, we interview patients for our nursing audio program. We've interviewed quite a few. I remember this woman who, amazing story, she has metastatic disease. I've talked to a number of people who had this kind of viewpoint, and incredibly, she's been on Herceptin for eight years. You know, she's one of these people. It happens. You know, it's not every day, obviously. And she's gotten to a point where she looks forward to it, and one of the reasons is to be able to give back is to be able to talk to the people who are scared out of their mind and say, hey, I've been coming in here for eight years and I'm doing fine. So it's interesting how, you know, being in this situation changes your perspective a lot. Absolutely does. And there is nothing like someone who's been there to share their experiences. And one of the things that I've found, particularly with newly diagnosed 
patients is they do want to talk to someone and hear that firsthand experience of someone else who's been there. And even, for example, in my institution at the university, there is a network of support for those who are newly diagnosed, staff, faculty, students, etc. And we have this network. And it is tremendously, tremendously helpful to hear that firsthand experience and to know that someone has been out there with this disease, with metastatic disease for eight years. That adds so much hope to many people in terms of their own perspective and in their lives. I like the idea of focusing on things that nurses can do that really are going to make a difference, like some of these examples we've given, particularly the nurses in infusion rooms who might feel a little bit isolated from sort of the overall flow of Mm -hmm. these people. But, you know, I guess one of the things would be that maybe if you see a woman who's getting adjuvant chemotherapy and you know she's coming to the end of that treatment period, maybe in the few visits before then to start to explore what are the issues that she's going to be facing in terms of survivorship. Absolutely, because at the time that women are on treatment, they really have to focus on receiving adjuvant therapy, managing their acute side effects, incorporating what acute treatment schedules they have into their lives, and yet they take on another chapter. It's just another chapter in their cancer experience after treatment ends, and many are not necessarily prepared for that or even understand or can even self-monitor for any intermediate to late effects and why certain surveillance is important and why taking their medications is important as well. What are some of the issues that you think a nurse might begin to probe for a patient who's coming to the end of adjuvant therapy specifically? First thing I would just say is how are you feeling as you're ending your therapy with us? You know, one of the biggest concerns that I see as your nurse is that many patients start to either get a little anxious They may not sleep as well at night. They might start to wonder what's going to happen to them after. So let me give you some information. Here's what our follow-up schedule is going to look like. Here's our phone number to contact us. That would be number one. Just kind of allay their fears to know that there is going to be support that's going to be out there and you are going to have follow-up. Second of all, you're going to actually have more time because you don't have to come see us every every few days or every eight days or so. And how is that going to fit into your life? So starting from the patient perspective? What have you planned for resuming or continuing full-time with work or retiring or changing their job? What are some of the practical concerns that you have about insurance? What do people have said to you? Do you think you have to disclose everything? Of course not. So we've trained you as a patient to tell us, but this is not something that you have to do as a survivor to tell everyone you know, about, you know, disclose these important details in your life. And then just some other practical kinds of things. You know, you may still continue to have fatigue for a period of time. That may not necessarily go away. But we do want you to know that there is always going to be someone available that you can talk to about anything. I think also maybe to reinforce the concept of the recovery process and that it takes time and that this is a kind of a difficult, stressful, physically stressful situation, but that, you know, most people will recover from it. But, you know, maybe you need to be a little bit patient. I think that that's absolutely the best recommendation, just to be patient, because we have seen in the studies of quality of life over time in both younger and older women with breast cancer that there is good recovery. And usually by the end of the first or the second year, much of the previous functions have been recovered in the majority of cases, and concerns about anxiety, depression, et cetera, also start to decline. And so women, again, who survivors, very resilient and tend to actually do very well. 
And that's really important for them to hear that this is going to be really, really important, very positive for you. Just give it the time. Any thoughts about so-called chemo brain? I just interviewed an internist with breast cancer and she felt like, you know, it's a year later and she still isn't able to process things away and, you know, that she did before. And I wonder, you know, how much of this is the actual effect of chemotherapy? How much is the stress and, you know, all the other things that might be contributing to this? What are your thoughts about this syndrome? Well, I've definitely seen that with our patients who have been on our studies. I've also had students who had breast cancer referred to me by their professors. They tended to do really well in school, and then they either were missing classes, skipping out on classes, or doing poorly. And I said that this is likely a multifactorial effect after treatment ends. there has been some of the work that we see with chemotherapy. For others, it's just they put their lives on hold. And after treatment ends, everything comes rushing forward in terms of perspective. And they may be focusing on some of that as well. And others, I think, clearly with some of our older patients, I tend to see that they have become more forgetful. Some of them, they stop in the middle of a sentence like what I'm doing right now, can't remember that next word. It's a word that basically stops them. And you didn't even have chemo. (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) And so part of that for me I know is aging as well. But I think it's just that we have so much stuff in our head. I mean, don't you think you have more things in your brain now than you did 10 years ago? Most certainly, and it doesn't always stick. (laughs) Um, Another issue about adjuvant chemotherapy, I'm curious about your perspective on it, again, leading into this transition period, is the impact of alopecia in terms of their sort of psychosocial status. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, they don't like it, obviously. And we, you know, have tried to do and make some strides in terms of look good, feel better programs and preparatory teaching with regards to the hair loss and how it can fall out, etc. But it is what it is, you know. You know, it, it is what it is, and so what we try and do is to get them through as you know as quickly as possible. Some tips have been actually very good: cutting their hair gradually shorter before the chemo starts, understanding what it's going to be like. You know, it may fall out all at one time; it may be just gradually over the first two cycles. What it's going to look like when it comes back? You know, that it's going to be very soft, fine, and it's going to be very curly at first why your scalp is going to itch, why it's just not your hair on top of your head that you're going to be losing, why it's important to know other areas of your body. If you're going to be losing hair, it's going to be in all of them. And so some of those help. And in other instances, it's time that's going to bring back your hair again. And it may not be, you know, for over a year before that occurs. 